Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, indeed, hallowed be your name. We pray, Lord, that as we give ourselves now to your inspired text, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cause it to change our hearts and minds. Bring us now in submission to your word. Write it upon our hearts. Use it, Lord, to convict us of any sin, bringing us to true repentance. But Lord, use your word to likewise point us to Jesus Christ and the grace that is found in him and him alone. Lord, help us now to trust in Christ, to believe in him, and to, by your spirit, follow after him delightfully, joyfully, and in all love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here is a passage of scripture almost everyone has heard. Many of us love and have prayed before. And perhaps if you're like me, you are now more and more coming to grips and and really understanding the depth of what Jesus is teaching us here. We've been examining the Lord's Prayer over the last few weeks, and and last week we kind of zoomed in on what Jesus meant here in verse 9 when he said, pray then like this. He's teaching us, isn't he? That there really is a, a, a correct way to approach God in prayer. There's a right way to pray, a right way to approach the act of praying. One of the things that we saw last week, the essential thing that we looked at really, was that you cannot pray aright if you are not approaching God as your Father. When you pray, pray like this, our Father. We saw, of course, that you cannot call God your Father if you have not called Christ your King. There's no coming to God in prayer as a a son of God unless you have put your faith in the Son of God. So when you pray to God and call on Him as your Father, you are doing so as someone in Christ forgiven of all your sins. You're coming to God as someone now united to Jesus Christ. That was our focus last week. This week, though, we want to deal with the rest of this passage, the rest of verse 9. And and as I've looked and meditated upon this great verse, I see here in verse 9 five things we need to remember when we pray. Five things that we need to remember when we pray. And, And because Jesus starts his prayer like this, these are therefore, I think, preeminent or ought to be preeminent in our praying. Because he puts it at the very top of how we're to prayer, it becomes essential to understand these things when we pray. So, first, we must remember that God is in heaven. 
We've seen already the surprising familiarity Jesus grants to us by teaching us to call upon God as our Father. There's amazing grace in that fact, grace which allows us to to come boldly before the throne of grace and, and to petition God in prayer just like a son, just like a beloved child petitions his daddy. But Jesus immediately reminds us, doesn't he, that that our Father, our, our Abba, our Papa, He is in heaven. Though He is as close as you could be with somebody relationally, He is still at the same time separate and holy and sanctified. God is still supremely distinct and, and He's wholly other. Our Father is in heaven. And as such, He is still clothed in that unapproachable light of heaven. His glory and and his being are being reminded to us here entirely transcendent. The essence of who he is in his being is beyond our deepest ability to comprehend the totality of who he is. Is there a way to come to him now in prayer and to boldly present yourself to him all that lies heaviest and deepest within your hearts? confessing and professing all that you want to talk about? Yes, absolutely. In Jesus, that way is entirely opened up for us. But be reminded that he is no mere father. Jesus is reminding us here that he is in heaven and he is no domesticated deity. No, he's still God. And so when we pray to our father in heaven, we're to be reminded that our God is to be revered. Our prayer still ought to be seasoned and flavored with fear and reverence and respect and all honor. Didn't Jesus Christ himself approach God this way? He did. Uh, There was and will be no one closer to the Father than Christ, the eternal Son. And yet still did Jesus submit himself before the Father in complete reverence and fear. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 11, where he foretells the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, says that when the Messiah arrives, he will live his life fearing his father. Specifically, he says, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be upon him. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Friends, if this was true of Christ, our Savior, he, our perfect example of how to live before God and and how to pray to God, And then how much more ought it be of us? I suspect that we're far more comfortable with the idea of God as our Father. Seeing that relationship perhaps as something where, you know, anything goes. I'm cool with my Father, and and my Father's cool with me, and therefore God isn't really concerned with how I approach Him. But how comfortable are we with what the scriptures seem to indicate that God, our Father, still demands our hearts to come before him in reverent fear? He is still enthroned in heaven. This idea that God is in heaven, it's not so much concerned with locality. God is everywhere, right? There's no place where God is not. Now, the idea of God being in heaven, I think, has more to do with God's heavenly rule, his authority, his power, his might. 
and his glory. He really is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And so when we say he's enthroned in heaven, we're, we're getting at the idea that, that God rules from a place of perfect power. That's so when we pray to our Father in heaven, we're marrying together the, the twin truths of a loving and a gracious Father who is at the same time terrifyingly powerful and able to accomplish all that he wills. There ought to be a bit of counting the cost then when it comes to praying to God. He's good, yes. He, he, he loves you unchangeably, amen. Come boldly, come joyfully as a child to your daddy, but he is God. And, and you're asking God to do something. So friends, come with reverence, come in fear, be reminded that he is our father in heaven. The second thing we must remember is that we do not pray to God as mere individuals. We don't pray to God as mere individuals. The pronoun Jesus uses at the beginning of this prayer is awfully telling, isn't it? He teaches us to pray by saying, our Father. In Christ, we come to God not merely as a son, but as a, a son or daughter among many other brothers and sisters. I think Jesus is teaching us here to pray with, with others in mind. Or perhaps even better, to pray to God is to pray with the mindset that God has saved me to himself within the context of a community. Uh, my praying to God only makes sense in light that God has saved me to himself in a church. This is striking, isn't it? In light of how Jesus taught us not to pray earlier in verses 5 through 6. You see there where he says, go into your room, into your room privately, not as hypocrites, not to, not to be seen by others, but go pray secretly out of the sight of others where it's just you and God. It's almost as if he's reminding us here in verse 9 that our private praying, which he commanded us to do, well, it's never really private, is it? We pray not as, as lone individuals, the great lone American. It's just me and my God. No, we pray as members of God's family, as members of God's household, the church. So often it's said that you can tell when a man prays publicly that he spends a lot of time with God privately in prayer. You, you, you know the, the, the tone and tenor of his private prayer by how he prays in public. I think Jesus might be getting at the opposite here. The way in which we are skilled and, and built up in our private devotions, in our private prayers, is often taught and learned in the context of corporate community praying. The emphasis probably ought to be here, which reverberates out and equips us to pray better privately and in our closet. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then what's the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you, you can't love your neighbor if you're not loving God. And if you're not loving your neighbor, you probably don't love God. But when you love God and love your neighbor as the supernatural outworking of that God-centered love, you will inevitably pray to God 
from the mindset of being one with others who also love and pray to God. I think it's appropriate as well to highlight here perhaps an extenuating principle. Even when you pray privately as an individual, Jesus is reminding us that you're, you're really praying in the context of a community. Your, your prayers at some point should, should, once going to God, be focused on others and then for yourself. You're never really just an individual. Likewise, when you're out in the world, living your life as an individual, even when you're in private, how does this connect? Well, you're never just an individual. You're a constant witness to and, and a part of a community. You represent Christ's church everywhere and wherever you go. And when you vote at a church members meeting, well, you, you're never really just voting as an individual, are you? No, you're voting and raising your voice within and as a part of a community, the body of Christ, your vote loving your neighbor as yourself. The second thing we have to remember here is that we do not pray to God as mere individuals. The third thing Jesus wants us to see here is that God's name is to be hallowed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. And the first petition in the Lord's Prayer, I think, indeed, is the chief petition of the Lord's Prayer. Again, if the first great commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, well, then here we see that the first great petition is to hallow God's name. Of course, here's a word many of us probably aren't used to. You've probably said it many times before, but I'll bet you right now a lot of you are thinking, what does it mean to hallow? It's an old English word from which derives our more modern word holy. It means to make holy. It means to sanctify or to, to venerate, to revere, or to ascribe holiness to. We know the, the word Halloween, all hallows eve, just means all saints eve or, or, or all holy ones eve. So that when Jesus is teaching us here to hallow God's name, He's teaching us to ascribe to God holiness, to revere God and to venerate his name as such in God's set-apart holiness. It's striking, therefore, that right from the beginning, that is, from the very first petition we see Jesus teach us, the whole prayer becomes set apart as a radically God-centered prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a hallowed prayer because it's preeminently concerned with the hallowed nature of God's being. The prayer is driving us to, to behold and, and to stand amazed at who God is. If you were to have the chance to ask God what he thought was the most important thing in all existence, God, if you could point to one thing which which is more important and more exalted than anything else, what would you point to? And of course, the answer would be himself. What is more important to God? God is most important to God. I am that I am, answers God. And we know this is true precisely because of who God is. 
God commands us in the very first commandment to not put anything before God because God in all of his perfection and all of his godness is perfect. He is in himself eminently to be desired over and above anything else. Therefore, he says, do not have nor worship nor love any other God besides the Lord your God. And here's the thing. God in his holiness obeys what he commands. God loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and friends, it's, it's profoundly good that God loves God. If God were to love and to behold and exalt anything else as more important or more beautiful than himself, then he would cease to be God. He would, in fact, be saying that that, that thing, that that person I'm beholding is more important than me, is in and of itself more glorious than me. And friends, that's just not true. God isn't a liar. God loves with a pure love. And so he rightly and has eternally loved himself preeminently because he's God. God is love. When you begin to grasp the reality that God is in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the Father delights fully and eternally in the Son, and that the Son loves and beholds beautifully the glory of God the Father, and all love the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son, our minds begin to melt at the inexhaustible mystery of who God is in all of his glorious godness and goodness. Our hearts are humbled at the thought. We're brought low to a position where I think our prayers can't help but cry out, Oh, our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. You see what's going on here? In one sense, we really can't hallow God's name. God is already fully hallowed in and of himself. He's already gloriously exalted. He is in who he is, full and perfect in his entire being. And there is not one part of God, if we can think about parts of God, there's not one part of God that is not perfect and divine and full and glorious. God is pure being, eternal and unchangeable. And so when we pray, God, hallowed be your name, we're not praying, God, you need me to exalt you in order for you to be holy. Right? God doesn't need you to pray this. God doesn't need anything at all. The minute God needs something, he becomes someone in need and ceases to be God. Now, from eternity past, he's been fully and perfectly delighting in himself. So what's going on here? Well, here's the fourth thing we need to remember. We must remember that we cannot, by ourselves, hallow God's name. We cannot, by ourselves, hallow his name. I know this sounds a bit counterintuitive. Jesus teaches us here to, to hallow God's name. And I'm saying you, you, you can't hallow God's name. What I mean is this. By ourselves as sinners we are entirely incapable of honoring God rightly. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that left to ourselves, even our righteousness and our good works are only filthy rags before the Lord. 
David in Psalm 51, he goes on in prayer and acknowledges there that, that his sin, it's constantly before him. It stains all that he is and everything that he does. Even his prayers, David says, carry the stench of sin with him. That he's been sinful even from within his mother's womb. So the reality is that not only does God not need us to be hallowed, he doesn't need us to be exalted, but that even when we do try to hallow God's name, our best efforts are at best weak and at worst offensive. The Westminster Larger Catechism, when it asks, what is the first petition in the Lord's Prayer? Answer 190 gives this startling truth. In the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name, we acknowledge the utter inability and indisposition that is in ourselves and all men to honor God aright. This is a truth that so many people have either forgotten or perhaps have just never really thought about before. God really is holy. And in his holiness and goodness and perfections, he cannot have sin before him. You and I, all of us, are so used to sin. It's so a part of our DNA and our everyday experience that we don't really get this. We're okay with sin because we live with it. We're in it. We love it. Our hearts and our minds have this perpetually broken bent to always bend towards sinful thoughts. We find deep satisfaction in judging others. We, we find deep satisfaction in having our minds lust after other people. We love imagining a future where we're always on top, wealthy, healthy, and problem-free. We're okay with so much sin that we easily excuse it in others. We excuse it in ourselves. We, we champion sinful habits and actions as actually good for us. We think that we should have the ability to say that, well, that's not a sin. And well, we think that this thing over here, that is a sin. We're okay with those categories shifting. This used to be a sin, but not anymore. We don't want it to be. We like that now. Or, but this used to be a virtue, but now that virtue is highly offensive and I think should be a sin. In our own inconsistent sinfulness, we are lost and absorbed in the knotted mess of our own fallen and deceptive hearts. And so collectively, I don't think we really understand, at least in its fullness, what it means for God to be holy. We're not really sure how to think about the perfect shalom and peace and loveliness and beauty of being in God's presence. And yet, we have to remember that we were created to be in God's presence. We were designed in God's image to do nothing but reflect and reverberate the beauty of who God is in his holiness and perfection. Ever since man's fall in the Garden of Eden, we've lived as this this species distorting God's image. All of us come into this world now broken, kind of like distorted, broken mirrors. And so the reflection of God's glory seen in our lives does not, in fact, hallow God's name. But that wasn't always the case, and we need to remember that. We were at one point in our ancient history, we were the apex of God's creation. 
We were his image bearers, and we did nothing but hallow God's beautiful name. But all of that was lost. We ruined that by seeking to exalt ourselves, and many still do today. But God, because he's love, because he delights in magnifying the effulgence of the glory of his own eternal love, and because he is supremely in love with his own name, he has therefore so loved this broken world that he sent his only eternally begotten son, Jesus, who is the fullness of God himself, And he sent him to become one of us. God sent his son and he became a man and he entered into our fallen and our distorted world and he even succumbed to the evil injustices of our sinful society, dying on a cross, tasting there the the fullness of the ugliness of death. And it was there in that moment, right there on the cross, where it seemed that sin finally and forever got the upper hand where we in our sinfulness thought that we, we finally erased the glory and beauty of God and now we could really shine for ourselves. It was there where God began that good work of restoring us all. Well, friends, in Jesus' death, all of our sin was atoned for. All of our guilt was taken away. And to anyone who would come to Christ and find forgiveness in him would also find full recovery. The, the, the distortion and the brokenness would be mended. Uh, The sinful bent would be made straight. In Christ, not only would we be declared righteous before God, but by his spirit, we also begin to be made holy before God. We are being set apart in Christ, sanctified by his spirit. Perhaps the old English way of saying it is that we are being hallowed unto God. Friends, if you're here this morning as someone who has never put their, their trust in Jesus Christ, I want to bring to your attention this morning the admittedly uncomfortable truth that right now, without Jesus Christ, you stand condemned under the goodness of God's holiness and justice. God must punish sin. His name's sake is on the line. God sees all. God knows all. All rapists, all racists, and all rebels will finally be judged. And friends, that's a good thing. And we acknowledge that that's a good thing. But all of us, in all of our sin, we stand in that same category. All sin is just as ugly to God. Every sin demands God's just wrath. And so I want to call you this morning to do one thing, which has two components. Come to Jesus Christ, which means that you must repent of your sin. Acknowledge that you do, in fact, sin that you are in fact a sinner and that you cannot change yourself by yourself. And then secondly, put your faith in and rely upon Jesus Christ alone. In God's grace, he's given you a way to have everything forgiven and to come back into a right relationship with himself simply through his son. Repent and believe. leads us to our last and final point, which is this. We must pray for God's name to be hallowed. When the Westminster Larger Catechism, again, asks, what's the first petition in the Lord's Prayer? 
The answer goes on to tell us that in the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name, we must acknowledge the utter inability and indisposition that is in ourselves and all men to honor God aright. But therefore, we must pray that God would by his grace enable us and incline us by his grace to know and to acknowledge and to highly esteem God. God and all his titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known by, and that we would glorify God in thought, word, and deed. Do you see the logic of what's going on here? When we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're acknowledging that in and of ourselves, we can't do that rightly. And so that's exactly why we pray. God, would you and your sovereign grace enable me to live a life that hallows your name? In Jesus' culture, really throughout the Bible, we see that a person's name is closely connected to who a person is, right? So when God revealed his different names at different times throughout Scripture, he was using his name to reveal something about who he is. He is God Most High. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the eternal I Am. God tells us his name is Yahweh, who is our help. Yahweh, the righteous one. Yahweh, the provider. The names of God in Scripture are meant to reflect the excellent and glorious character of who God is. So when we pray, God, may your name be hallowed, we're asking God to exalt himself, for God to make his name known, his name famous. And we're asking for God to work in and through us that we might live lives that honor who he is. I wonder what you would say the opposite is of hallowing God's name. What's the opposite of hallowing God's name? Using the language of scripture, I'd say it's taking the Lord's name in vain. We know, don't we, that taking God's name in vain is far more than just you know, using the word God or the name Jesus Christ as a curse word. It is that. People do that and that's sinful. But taking the Lord's name in vain is far more than that. When we live in such a way that as Christians we're not actually representing the name of Christ, where our actions are actually dishonoring the name of Christ, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. We take the Lord's name in vain when we fail to rightly proclaim the glory of his name to all the world. We don't esteem Christ's name as we ought to, and and so we see no real need. There's There's no impending intensity to make his name known to our neighbors. They'll be fine. So what Jesus is leading us to pray here is to make supreme in our own lives the glory of the name of God. Hallow your name, O Lord, in my life, in our lives. In a way, to to pray hallowed be your name is the same thing as praying, God, make me holy and grant that my life may be a life lived in reverence towards you. That my life is, a, is a, a reflection to the surrounding watching world of your goodness and the glory of your name. When people see me, I want them to see something of the, the, the residue of Christ. Father, hallowed be your name. Work in me and, and, and work within our church 
Give us a revived ability to always acknowledge your unsurpassed and glorious name. That every decision I make, every dollar I spend, every word I speak, every secret thought, every action towards my wife, every action towards my husband, every encounter I have with my kids, with the friends of my kids, every time I'm on the beltway, Lord, I pray, hallow your name and may I be a reflection of your holy goodness. I can't do it, God, but you can. I should pray this a lot more, I believe. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with that iconic question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, that profoundly God-centered answer, says that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That glorious idea, that right idea, flowers out of the soil of this amazing petition. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, I'm praying that my whole life, my my chief end would be committed to glorifying you and enjoying you forever. I pray that that be so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and honor and praise this morning that you are the all-powerful creator of the universe, that you are the ruler of all that you have made, and you are the sustainer of all that you have made. You are in control of the minutest details of our lives. Not a, a leaf falls from a tree without your express command. Father, we thank you and give you praise that you are truly and perfectly holy in all that you are and all that you do. That you are without sin, that you are without error, that you are without evil or wrongdoing in your perfect nature. And Father, that is an encouragement to us this morning. But Father, that should also drive us to revere your name. To, to live in awe of your holiness. Father, that should drive us to want to rid ourselves of the sin that so easily entangles us and to desire to know you deeper and to be changed by your word and your spirit, to be conformed into the image of our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray this morning that your name would be hallowed in our lives as individuals. Father, we pray that your spirit would sanctify each one of us each and every moment of every day, conforming us into the image of our Savior. We pray that our our lives would reflect the glory of our Savior and your perfect holiness. We know and acknowledge that we are still sinners, that our sin nature still dwells within us, pulling us back, being tempted by the devil to rebel against you. But Lord, we pray that you would, by the preaching of your word, by the spirit at work in us, change us, ridding us of our sin, mortifying our flesh, 
and putting on Christ and our new nature. And Father, we also pray that your name would be hallowed in us as a church. Father, that you would be conforming us as a church into what we should be, into the image of our Savior. That you would teach us what it is to love one another deeply from the heart. That you would teach us what it is to bear one another's burdens and uphold one another in prayer and in service. Father, that you would teach us what it is to preach the word to one another, to speak the word, to rebuke one another with the word, to be confronting each other in our sin, and to be encouraging each other in righteousness. We need your strength and your spirit at work within us to do these things. But Lord, it is our desire as a church to hallow your name, that we would be a light to this community of Greenbelt, that they would look at this church and see your glory, see your holiness at work in us. Father, that is our prayer this morning. And it's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray.